Hi, welcome to Fizzgig. I'm Wendy Althwaite, and I admit to being fascinated by fizz, the taste, the tingle, and most importantly, the trivia. Do join me. We'll explore the myths and the mysteries of the world's greatest sparkling wines. Full disclosure here, I produce English sparkling wine in West Sussex myself, but this podcast is not about our wine in particular, or even about English sparkling wine in general. It's about the scintillating world of effervescence. I'll pop a cork and cast a pod every Friday, and I do hope you'll be with me. Don't forget to listen out for the pudding at the end. It's a little tidbit that, whilst not strictly on point, amuses me. Pop it in your goodie bag as a little fact to take away. So here we go. TGI Fizz Day. And today we're looking at how champagne is made, by whom, and revealing the secret cipher of champagne labels. Don't worry, I'm not trying to make you into winemakers, but I'd just like to explain a bit about the process because it'll make you appreciate your next sip of fizz all the more. So let's have a quick recap on the traditional method. The different grapes, principally Chardonnay, Pinot Noir and Pinot Meunier, are picked traditionally by hand and taken to the winery while they're pressed into grape juice and then fermented into wine. The winemaker will decide whether or not to make the wine go through malolactic fermentation, and I'll come back to that in a bit. Once the wines are fermented, they are what the wine world calls wine, and what the sparkling wine world calls base wine. They're then blended together in different proportions, perhaps with reserve wines from different years, before being bottled. And as you'll remember, the traditional method involves adding a little sugar and yeast at bottling so that when the wine goes through secondary fermentation, it creates bubbles. The bottle is sealed with a crown cap, just like a beer bottle, which is slightly less glamorous than a champagne cork, but it does the job. After the yeast has fermented and died, it sinks to the bottom of the bottle and the wine is left in contact with the lees to create all those delicious autolytic flavours. The law requires that non-vintage champagnes be kept on the bottle lees for one and a half years and that vintage champagnes be kept on the lees for three years, but often wine is kept on the lees for longer. Paul Roger, for instance, would identify bottles destined for the UK market and give it an additional six months on the lees because the Brits preferred it that way. When the time is right, however long that is, the bottle is riddled, that is, slowly turned so that the bottle lees goes into the neck. It's then disgorged by freezing the neck and letting the now frozen bottle lees fly out of the bottle. Dosage, which is sugar, wine, and sometimes other great products such as brandy, is added, and we'll come back to dosage in a future podcast. The wine is topped up and then the bottle is corked and a muzzle applied. It was the champagne house Jacasson who invented the muzzle in 1845 to stop the corks popping out of the bottle and flying across the cellar. And there you have it, the basics of a bottle of traditional method fizz. Of course, this is a slightly simplified version and I have left out all sorts of things, but it's enough to give you the heads up. The only thing I did want to talk about specifically is malolactic fermentation, which is just a winemaking choice. 
malolactic fermentation changes the taste and texture of the wine to make it buttery and creamy. It transforms the tart green apple tang in the wines from the malic acid, malus meaning apple, into dairy creaminess, lactic acid as in the stuff found in milk, mallow to lactic. The wine tastes less acidic to the palate and rounder. And although it's called malolactic fermentation, it isn't a fermentation at all. No yeast is involved. It's a bacterial inoculation. Inococcus ini and other lactobacillus strains digest malic acid and release lactic acid. Malolactic fermentation, abbreviated to MLF or mallow, is common in sparkling wine production. And it can be difficult to identify just by tasting the wine. It's easy to confuse MLF with the effect of prolonged bottle lease ageing, lower acidity and a rounder mouthfeel. Obviously, MLF is much quicker and cheaper. On the one hand, it adds body and texture to the wine, but on the other hand, it can sandpaper off the delicate floral and citrus aromas. MLF tends to homogenise wines, which is great for consistency, but it's a tad dull and risks removing the distinct terroir flavours of the wine. This doesn't matter so much in much of Champagne, where the grapes come from different areas of a region which is as big as Belgium, so terroir only really matters for grower champagnes. Nevertheless, some winemakers use just a bit of MLF in some of their wines before blending so that the final wine retains some of the original character. To understand who makes champagne, you have to look at history. The common misconception is that Champagne, like many other wine-growing regions, is littered with small, family-owned vineyards, each growing their own grapes and vinifying their own bottles of wine, which they then offer to the market for sale. And while such family-run operations do exist, and there are some absolutely fabulous grower Champagnes, they're not the norm. As you know, geographically, Champagne is in northern France, and the Marne Valley in particular is a nice flat bit of land which is perfect for marauding armies to march through. West to Paris, east to Germany, south to Italy and Switzerland. This means that Champagne has a history of being trampled over by people who have no particular interest in viticulture. There have been vines in Champagne since the 5th century, and various militia, Attila the Hun, the Knights Templar, everyone in the Hundred Years' War, Joan of Arc, the French Revolution, the Napoleonic Wars and the occupations during World War I and World War II have ravaged the area. To varying degrees, such conflicts have destroyed vines and infrastructure, deprived us of the best vignons and led to destruction and despair. However, good military routes are also good trade routes both overland and using the rivers, and Champagne was perfectly positioned to be a trading centre, and it had many trade fairs and many merchants. Before the French Revolution, the vineyards were owned by the nobles and the clergy. The French Revolution disposed of or displaced them. In time, some vineyard workers bought small parcels of vineyard that they had previously worked, the economy had crashed, people were starving, and vineyards could be bought very cheaply, which attracted merchants who love a bargain. And it was merchants who were the foundation of the sparkling wine we call champagne. It was a product 
to be traded along the trade routes that they'd already established, and it was a very promising export line. At the start of the 17th century, so before the French Revolution, most of the wine in Champagne was very ordinary still white wines that were paillés, straw-coloured, or very pale red wines. So clear, in fact, they were described as clarette, from which the English term claret is derived long before it came associated exclusively with Bordeaux. The colour of the Champagne reds were Eau de Perdrix partridge eye, which was an undesirable rosé red colour. The punters much preferred the bold reds of Beaune. The Champenois were known to um, <clears throat> accentuate the redness of their red wines with wines from outside Champagne. But the breakthrough came when they discovered how to make still white wine from black grapes, which the Champenois called vin gris, grey wine. These white wines had more body and were more aromatic and fruity. Put simply, they tasted better. Merchants, who were used to selling glue, bottles and textiles, added a little still wine sales on the side. In the 18th century, these maisons de commerce would buy, sell and sometimes even make wines from the vineyards they picked up on the cheap. Some of these houses are still around today. For example, Ruinard, established in 1729. Nicolas Ruinard was a draper. His sales records show sales of textiles and a few barrels of still red wine. It was his son who took over and came into the sparkling wine world. Moet, established in 1743. Claude Moet was a Dutchman, which explains why it's Moet and not Moet. He traded in barrels and bottles, but later wines, and his first sparkling wines were sold in 1744. Clicquot was established in 1772. Philippe Clicquot was a banker and a draper in Reims, but he also owned vines. He sold his wines to friends and business acquaintances, and his son, or rather his daughter-in-law, who later became Veuve Clicquot, began sparkling wine production in 1799. And Heidsig. Florence-Louis Heidsig was a German trader who married the daughter of a wool merchant, but he began to produce and sell sparkling wines in Champagne in 1785. Interestingly, many Champagne houses were founded or run by Germans from the merchant class. For instance, Renard Müller, Bollinger, Mumm, Krug, Veuve-Clicquot-Ponsandin and Heidsig. Soon enough, Champagnes, which included the newfangled sparkling stuff, was being traded where their other merchandise was traded, in Flanders, England, Russia, Poland, Scandinavia, Holland, Switzerland and Italy, most famously to Casanova. It was the merchant's name that was on the label. Unlike other Rhine regions where terroir is all important, what mattered here and now was the brand. Despite disasters, like the 1830 cholera epidemic and the loss of 15,000 acres of vines to phylloxera in 1910, the Champagne riots of 1911 and the small matter of fraudulently passing off wine from outside the Champagne area as Champagne, all was going reasonably well. Until World War I, where much of the Marne Valley was destroyed. The trouble with soldiers is that they destroy vines and drink wines. The special affinity that Russians have with Champagne dates back to their campaign tours in the Napoleonic Wars. In World War I, 
bored troops huddled safely in the labyrinthine underground caves of Champagne and drank the stock. By 1918, 40% of the vineyards had been destroyed, and those that survived were scarred with trenches and tangled in barbed wire. People starved, so there was little discretionary spend for sparkling wine. And just as the Champenois had replanted, in 1919 the USA embraced prohibition. So smuggling was rife, but sales were still hit. By 1929, the Great Depression had taken hold and by 1940, Champagne was under German occupation again. War took its usual toll on the vines in the Vignon. Champagne production slumped and any Champagne that was sold, to neutral countries of course, was subjected to a levy paid directly to the Germans. In 1941, the Champagne Trade Organisation, the CIVC, was formed to improve relations between growers and merchants and to establish cooperation with the Germans. But as the French resistance grew, various merchants, growers and champagne officials were deported to Germany. Pieper Heidsig and Mertie Chandon were sequestered because of their links with the resistance. Mum lost its lands after the war because they'd failed to naturalise as French. Thankfully, Champagne was liberated just before the cellars of Epinay could be bombed, as planned, in August 1944. So as we've seen, Champagne was in a great geographical position to trade, but also to be trampled over. War and revolution brings change, so the vineyards of the aristocracy and the clergy ended up in the hands of the merchants, who traded any product to hand, including wine. Every conflict or social or economic disaster led to a redistribution of land, which meant that by the end of the Second World War, Champagne was institutionally split into those who grew grapes and those who sold wines. So, who makes the wine? It all depends. Champagne has a historic and sophisticated market. Almost anything can be bought and sold at any stage of the process. Grapes, grape juice, wine in tank or barrel, which is called base wine, wine in bottle that's gone through secondary fermentation but isn't disgorged, that's called surlat, even disgorged finished wine that you just have to pop your own label on. It's all up for grabs at a price. So how do you know what you're buying? Well, it can be difficult. Champagne is notorious for having very little information on its label. There's a sort of snobbery about it. It's like that old joke that if you have to ask the price, you can't afford it. Well, in Champagne, it was common to only have the name of the brand, and in modern times this has been supplemented by the information that's strictly required by law. Because why would you need to know more? In the early days, all he had was the name of the merchant. It didn't even tell you it was Champagne. Nowadays, champagne is used universally as a generic term on the label. But often the only time you see a bottle of champagne is when a waiter pours it, wrapped in a napkin accompanying a canapé. But wouldn't it be lovely to know, if you were interested, what the grape varieties were? What was the percentage blend of each grape variety? Where the grapes were grown? When the grapes were harvested? When the wine was disgorged? and what the dosage is. This sort of information would be provided routinely on any other bottle of wine, but in Champagne, 
it's kept under wraps, sometimes literally. But the tide might be turning. Both Bruno Payard and Krug are disclosing the date of disgorgement, which is a start. However, you'll notice that there are little abbreviations on the label, usually at the bottom, which, if you know the secret code, will tell you at least who did what. So, here's the formula. NM means négociant manipulant. These are companies, like most of the big brands, of which the biggest is Moët Chandon. They buy the grapes and make the wine. The grapes can be bought from all over Champagne. RM means récoltant manipulant. This is a grower Champagne. The grower uses his own grapes to make his own wine, so it comes from a specific place, and the concept of terroir can come into play. Although even here, the lines are a little blurred. A récoltant manipulant can still buy 5% of his grapes from somewhere else, and he can call himself a récoltant manipulant even if he takes his wine to the co-op for disgorging and finishing. CM means coopérative de manipulation. Here the grape growers pool all the grapes together into a cooperative, which makes the wine, and then the grape growers get back a proportion of the wine. A good example of this is Beaumont de Créer. M.A. Marc d'Acheteur is the buyer's brand name, has no relation to the grower. The wine is made by someone else. It's a buyer's own brand, for instance, a supermarket brand like Tesco's Finest. N.D. is Négociant Distributeur. This is a wine merchant. Again, unrelated to the grower, but selling under his own name. It would be the fizz equivalent of Berry's Good Ordinary Claret, for instance. Don't worry about trying to remember all of these. The most useful are NM, Négociant Manipulant, for the big champagne houses, and RM, Récoltant Manipulant, for grower champagnes. The name Champagne, for the sparkling wine made in the Champagne area, is jealously guarded and it's legally protected in over 70 countries, including, of course, those in the EU. In the USA, no new product can be called Champagne, and only products that were called Champagne before 2006 can use the name, and only then if they show the actual origin, for example, California. In 2008, 3,000 bottles of Californian Champagne were destroyed by Belgium. Actually, Many US wine regions think that the use of the generic term is detrimental to its own emerging brands, so Oregon has banned its producers from using the term. And since 1994, non-Champenois cannot even use the term méthode champenoise, which is pretty rich, given that, as you know, the Champenois didn't invent it. But you have to feel the most sympathy for the little village of Champagne in Switzerland, which since 1657, so before sparkling champagne was created in Champagne, they'd been making a still wine called Champagne. The EU pressured the Swiss to phase out the name with a disastrous impact on sales, which immediately slumped from 110,000 bottles a year to 32,000 bottles. In contrast, Soviet square Champagne Square lives on. So anyone for pudding? I'd like to challenge the threat of killer corks. Periodically, we're warned that champagne corks are deadly. 
Tabloid newspapers estimate cork-related fatalities are between 20 to 1,000 people a year. Weddings are the most popular kill zone, apparently. More humans, allegedly, die of cork injuries than from poisonous snake bites or shark attacks. This is worrisome, or at least it would be, if it were true. So, habeas corpus, bring me the body. So far, I've not been able to find a single official report of any fatal cork strike. Is it even theoretically possible for a cork to kill? We know that corks are under a lot of pressure. Their top recorded speed of a cork leaving an unshaken bottle is 40 miles an hour. And that's not very fast. Even a bullet travelling at that speed probably wouldn't kill you. A bullet needs to travel over 600 miles an hour to kill. But I suppose it depends where it hits you. Corks erupt from bottles every second of every day. Very few hit humans. Fewer still hit humans somewhere vulnerable, like an eye. Even if it did hit you in the eye, and that would hurt a lot and do your eyeball no favours, it wouldn't kill you. Apart from King Harold in the Battle of Hastings, I cannot recall an eye injury being fatal, and I'm slightly sceptical as to whether the Bayer Tapestry is the most authoritative or accurate medical source anyway. A corked eyeball is not fatal. Potentially, a direct hit to the temple, although you'd have to be a contortionist to affect that, or a nose fracture sending splinters to the brain might do it, but it has never happened. The greatest danger from a cork is from eating it and choking, and that hasn't happened either. So don't eat corks, avoid sharks and spider attacks, and uncork with care. You'll probably be fine. Something to celebrate, eh? So there we have it, Fizzerati. We know how champagne is made and who done it. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join me next Friday when we'll meet the fourth musketeer of champagne, sugar. Until then, may your wine, like your wit, be sparkling. Chin chin.